impact crater with uh, at uh, just prior to the subsolar point on the south side and the floor of it. Uh, even if there is one dark hole, but I couldn't get a quick enough look at it to see if it might be anything volcanic. The Earth emerged slowly from behind the lunar landscape. The Apollo 8 capsule, now on its fourth rotation around the moon, had spun so that its crew could see their planet as it rose above the alien horizon. From this distance, it looked insignificant. A circle of blue and green immersed in a sea of inky black darkness. A planet swallowed whole in a universe that didn't care about its fate. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, is that pretty? Hey, don't take that from schedule. <laughs> you got a color film, Jim? Hand me a roll of color quick. Oh, you? man, that's great. Where is it? Quick. Hey, I've got it right here. That's, let me get up this here. A lot clearer. Bill, I got a phrase that's very clear right here. You got it? Yep. Just take your thermal. Take your thermal up here. Give it to me. Wait a minute. Let me just get the right setting here. Hey, calm down, Mama. Oh, I got it right. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. 250 at F11. Now, there's a fair explosion over I there. did. I took two up there. You sure you got it now? Yeah, we'll get, well, it'll come up again, I think. The shot, taken by Bill Anders, a crewman aboard Apollo 8, would go on to become one of the most iconic photographs ever taken outside of the Earth's orbit. It encouraged many people to frame our issues as a civilization and culture as insignificant in the face of such a harsh universe. The photo was taken at a time when the world was anything but united, when our collective issues seemed insurmountable. Earlier that year, North Vietnamese forces launched the Tet Offensive, an all-out blitzkrieg that caused serious fatalities for both North Vietnamese and American forces. The offensive marked a serious turning point in the conflict and would be a harbinger of the beginning of the war's bloodiest phase. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. For years, representatives of our governments and others have traveled the world seeking to find a basis for peace talks. Since last September, they have carried the offer that I made public at San Antonio. And that offer was this, that the United States would stop its bombardment of North Vietnam when that would lead promptly to productive discussions and that we would assume that North Vietnam would not take military advantage of our restraint. Hanoi denounced this offer both privately and publicly. Even while the search for peace was going on, North Vietnam rushed their preparations for a savage assault on the people, the government, and the allies of South Vietnam. Their Back home, reporters and the media began, for the first time in history, to transmit unfiltered images and sounds of the war to the people of the United States. Vietnam was the first conflict where reporters were allowed unfettered access to the front lines and were free from censorship by the U.S. government. The American people, many of whom had sons fighting in the war, were taken aback by the unfettered violence being broadcast into their homes. Atrocities committed by both sides were revealed by a camera pointed squarely at the action. Vietnam did not carry the romanticism of conflicts like the two world wars that preceded it. 
This was simply a massacre. A few months after the Tet Offensive in April, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed by a white supremacist. King, an advocate for nonviolent protest, had spent nearly two decades championing the cause of civil rights for minorities and was a vocal opponent of the war in Vietnam. Two months later, another assassination would shake the nation to its core. Robert F. Kennedy, presidential candidate and brother of the late President John F. Kennedy, would be assassinated after giving a press conference in a hotel in Los Angeles, shortly after winning California in the Democratic primary election. The loss of two of the leaders of the progressive movement left a gaping hole in the political fabric of the nation. It wasn't long before nonviolent protests rapidly turned into violent riots, culminating in the tumultuous 1968 Democratic National Convention that left dozens wounded and several dead. It was against this backdrop, this bloody scene, that the image of the Earth rising above a cold and unforgiving lunar landscape was taken on Christmas Eve of 1968, as a year marked by violence, loss, and bloodshed drew to a close. Nearly three days prior, the three-man crew of Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and James A. Lovell had launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. The crew would enter Earth's orbit and slingshot around the planet, using its own gravity to rocket them up to a speed of over 22,000 miles per hour to break the planet's pull and be sent rocketing towards the moon, almost 240,000 miles away. As an unintended side effect, the three men would break a record and become the fastest moving humans in the history of our species. The circumnavigation of the moon was not actually part of the original plan. Apollo 8's original goal was to simply orbit around the globe and safely crash down in the Gulf of Mexico, much like its sister missions Apollos 1 through 7. It was a, by this point, fairly routine operation. But NASA and the federal government had gotten word earlier that year that the Russians were planning a lunar orbit mission for fall of 1968. Not wanting to be beaten by the Soviet Union, NASA rapidly pivoted Apollo 8's goals. In the course of a year, they completely overhauled a mission that had been in the planning stages for several years. On Christmas Eve of 1968, as their family celebrated without them around Christmas trees and warm fires thousands of miles away, the three-man crew of Apollo 8 settled into low lunar orbit over the moon's surface. It was from this cold and unforgiving landscape that Apollo 8 delivered a televised Christmas message to the people of Earth. It is easy, in the course of our lives, to think of our problems as world-ending. To believe that things are coming to an end and the world is forsaken by humanity's seemingly unbounded capacity for cruelty and atrocity. 
to watch the news or read a story that breaks our hearts and makes us ask, how can we continue on? But look at the photo taken by Bill Anders as he circled a foreign land. Some may choose to look at that image and feel fear, anxiety, and doubt. How can we continue to survive on such a small dot set in an ocean of emptiness? I think the answer is to embrace that loneliness. To accept, as Carl Sagan once put it, that we have no other home than this one. It is a unique human ability to be capable of great atrocities, but also be capable of change. Maybe we will someday go extinct. Maybe all traces of our society will be swallowed by the same green and blue earth that Bill Anders captured in this photograph. Or maybe we'll overcome it. Look at the photo and tell me, do our problems seem insurmountable? I don't believe so. In the grand scheme of the universe, our goings-on and troubles are small, and that makes them easy to overcome.